Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, December 9, 2014. I'll begin this week with some news from Washington about how the Senate is expected to consider a one-year tax extenders bill that the House passed last week. I'll also discuss the looming December 11th deadline by which lawmakers will need to pass a spending bill to avoid yet another government shutdown. In our low-income housing tax credit section, I have an update on the status of fiscal year 2015 income limits for properties funded by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development Programs, or the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program. I also have news on a case that may determine what constitutes discrimination under the Fair Housing Act, specifically concerning low income housing tax credit properties. Next, I'll share a report on how state housing agencies are using their qualified allocation plans to promote more supportive housing development. I'll also talk about the confirmation of Nanny Coloretti as the new Deputy Secretary of HUD. In this week's New Markets Tax Credit segment, I'll give you an update on the latest Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report that was released December 1st. I'll tell you the total dollar amount finalized by new market tax credit allocatees and the amount remaining to be issued. In our Renewable Energy Tax Credit section, I'll talk about strong support for extending the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit and Investment Tax Credit from the Governor's Wind Energy Coalition. Finally, in our historic tax credit section, I'll share some state-level news from North Carolina. As listeners likely know, the state historic tax credit is scheduled to expire in North Carolina at the end of the year, and developers are scrambling to qualify. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, the Senate is expected to take up a one-year extenders bill tomorrow, a bill that the House passed last week. Listeners may recall that the House was working on a bill before the Thanksgiving recess that would have likely included a two-year extension of several expiring or expired tax credits and other tax benefits. Well, that proposal was effectively shelved after the President released a preemptive warning that he would veto the bill. Even if Congress were able to pass that two-year extenders bill, it's very unlikely that they would have been able to get the two-thirds majority of votes needed to override a presidential veto. So, the House changed its approach by drafting and passing a one-year extenders bill last week. The House bill was passed with a vote of 378 to 46 in favor. That legislation would retroactively extend most tax provisions that expired at the end of 2013. By extending them for one year, that is, through the end of calendar year 2014, the bill falls short of the hopes of both those who wanted permanent or long-term extensions and those who wanted to eliminate some or all of them completely. I want to share a few provisions of the one-year extenders bill that would specifically interest the tax credit community. First of all, it extends the 9% floor for low-income housing tax credit allocations made before, yes, before January 1, 2015. However, most housing agencies have already made 
substantially all of their allocations based on a floating rate, so the one-year extension isn't very helpful. It's interesting to note that the Joint Committee on Taxation estimated that this provision would cost less than $500,000. I'll note that unlike the Senate Finance Committee's Expire Act, the House bill does not establish a 4% low compensation tax credit rate floor. Another provision of the House bill is to extend, through 2014, the military housing allowance exclusion for determining whether a tenant in certain counties is considered low income. The provision expands the number of potential residents for low-income housing tax credit buildings, and it allows more military members to be eligible for low-income housing. The extenders bill also extends the new market tax credit program through the end of 2014. Even though the new market tax credit program expired at the end of 2013, the City of Fifeon accepted applications for allocation authority in anticipation of program extension. For the next round, the City of Fifeon received $19.9 billion in requests for allocation authority, significantly more than the $3.5 billion that the extenders bill would authorize. Another provision extends the production tax credit, or PTC, for wind and certain other renewable energy sources that begin construction before the end of 2014. At this point, it's unclear how many wind or energy projects could benefit from the short-term extension this late in the game. I also want to point out that the Joint Committee on Taxation released a revised cost estimate for the bill last Thursday, in which it corrected a computational error in its cost estimate for the production tax credit. The revised estimate is $6.4 billion in foregone revenue over the next decade. That's down from the original estimate of $9.6 billion earlier last week. And the bill would also extend 50% bonus depreciation to property acquired and placed in service during 2014 or 2015 for certain properties with a longer production period. This would benefit many low-income tax credit or other rental real estate and renewable energy investors. We've posted a copy of the Tax Increase Prevention Act of 2014, or H.R. 5771, at www.novaco.com We've also written a blog post. And as I mentioned, the Senate is expected to take up the bill tomorrow, Wednesday, December 10th. The strategy of scheduling the vote toward the end of the session is to pressure lawmakers to hold a straight up or down vote. Any amendments in the Senate would mean that the bill would be sent back to the House for another vote. There certainly won't be much time for much back and forth in what's left of this lame duck session. In related news, House Appropriations Committee Chairman Hal Rogers announced last week that the committee is planning to post a trillion-dollar-plus spending package. The continuing resolution slash omnibus, or cromnibus, legislation consists of 11 long-term spending bills that would fund the government through the end of the fiscal year, which is September of 2015 for most departments, and there's one exception. There would be a short-term bill, funding bill, for the Department of Homeland Security. Rogers said that the continuing resolution would only fund the Department of Homeland Security until sometime in March. While no further details have been released yet about exactly what's in the funding legislation, the House and Senate Appropriations Committees are expected to release details today. So by the time you are listening to this podcast, they may already be out. And right now, it does look like Congress's best shot at avoiding a government shutdown is passing this legislation by this Thursday or passing a short-term 
continuing resolution to take him through Saturday or Sunday and then staying and voting over the weekend. As I mentioned, by the time you listen to this podcast, this draft bill is likely going to be public. Follow me on Twitter for more updates. To start off our long housing tax section, I have news from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. And it's news that will impact rents that can be charged by low-income housing tax credit properties. HUD announced last week that the publication of its fiscal year 2015 income limits will be delayed. Instead of being issued earlier this month, as originally anticipated, HUD expects that the fiscal year 2015 income limits will be published in February 2015. This delay is related to a change in the definition of an extremely low-income household, which is mainly used for setting admissions targets in the Housing Choice Voucher Program. The change was made in the 2014 Consolidated Appropriations Act, and extremely low-income household is now defined as the greater of the Department of Health and Human Services poverty guidelines, or 30% of area median income. Therefore, HUD's income limits won't be released until after the Department of Health and Human Services 2015 poverty guidelines are published. Now, as listeners know, these income limits are used to determine income eligibility for HUD's assisted housing programs, including public housing, Section 8, Section 202, and Section 811. Another indirect effect of this change is that the Multifamily Tax Subsidy Projects, or MTSP, income limits will also be delayed. Now, those are the income limits used to determine qualification levels and maximum rental rates for low-income housing tax credit developments and those financed with Section 142 tax-exempt housing bonds. The MTSP income limits are calculated in a way that's consistent with HUD Section 8 limits, and they rely on the effective date of those Section 8 limits. So in order to ensure that all the income limits users share a common effective date, MTSP income limits will be released at the same time as all other HUD program income limits. Now, if you have any questions about how this income limit announcement delay could affect your long housing tax credit property, please contact my partner, Jim Kroger, in our San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. In short, for tenants who will see rent increases in areas with higher income levels under the new guidelines that will be released in February, this is a brief period of relief. And for projects that need that income, to help cover operating expenses, it'll be a detriment. Turning to the Supreme Court, eight housing groups joined together last week to file an amicus brief with the United States Supreme Court in a case that may ultimately determine what constitutes discrimination under the Fair Housing Act, specifically concerning low-income housing tax credit properties. The groups filed their brief in connection with a lawsuit against the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs, and we've covered information about that lawsuit in previous podcasts. An amicus brief, as you likely know, is when a person or group with strong interest or views on a subject matter files a document in a case in which they're not directly related. This brief asks the court to rule that the Fair Housing Act does not have to concern itself with disparate impact liability. The specific lawsuit is scheduled to begin oral arguments January 21, 2015. The lawsuit by Dallas-based Inclusive Properties Project, claims that the state agency discriminated on the basis of race by approving too many low-income housing tax credits in minority areas and not enough in non-minority areas. It says that causes a disparate impact 
on a protected class. The District Court and U.S. Court of Appeals both ruled in favor of Inclusive Properties Project, and the state appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court is going to be asked to decide whether the desperate impact theory can be used in claims made under the Fair Housing Act. Now, the Fair Housing Act forbids disparate treatment, but disparate impact is a different matter. Disparate impact is when a policy that appears to be neutral has a discriminatory effect on a group based on race, sex, age, or disability. If the Supreme Court rules in favor of the Inclusive Properties Project, some established practices would be at risk of violating the Fair Housing Act. They include such things as criminal background screenings and Section 8 policies and practices. If the court rules that disparate impact must be considered, it would also affect where long housing tax credit developments take place. This is the third time in three years that the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case on the subject. The other two cases, though, settled before oral arguments. Now, the groups that are involved in the amicus brief are the National Least Housing Association, National Multi-Housing Council, National Apartment Association, National Association of Housing and Redevelopment Officials, National Association of Residential Property Managers, Public Housing Authorities Directors Association, National Affordable Housing Management Association, and the Council for Affordable and Rural Housing. I'll keep you posted as updates become available. Another long housing tax credit news, a report was released this month on strategies that housing agencies have adopted within the Qualified Allocation Plans, or QAPs, to su- promote supportive housing development. CSH, a national housing advocate and housing solutions provider, examined 56 QAPs for the report. The annual report found that 11 states or jurisdictions have implemented new or revised policies that encourage supportive housing development since last year's report. The report considers the term supportive housing to mean permanent housing with comprehensive supportive services for special needs populations. CSH listed three categories or ways that state agencies encourage supportive housing. The first is through threshold requirements. Housing agencies can either require that developers dedicate a certain percentage of units for permanent supportive housing, or they can require developers to include features such as units dedicated for households at or below 30% area median income. Or developers could be required to submit a service plan. The second way state agencies incentivize supportive housing development is by setting aside a certain portion of available long housing tax credits to supportive housing developments. And then the third way is through scoring incentives. Developers can score more points on their tax credit applications by developing supportive housing. CSH found that 35 agencies have scoring incentives or set-asides for dedicating 35% or more of units for supportive housing. That's an increase from 22 QAPs in 2013. CSH noted several emerging trends. For one thing, QAPs are providing additional incentives for developments in areas of opportunities. While the term areas of opportunity doesn't have a specific definition, it generally refers to areas with low poverty rates, close proximity to employment, high-performing school systems, and commercial development. CSH included areas of opportunity for the first time in this year's report to help identify opportunities for vulnerable populations to integrate into those communities. Another trend is that supportive housing properties for veteran populations are receiving incentives from a growing number of state agencies. This could be, in part, due to continued investment by the federal government for resources targeting veterans. HUD has its Veterans Affairs Support Housing, or VASH, program. It combines Housing Choice Voucher Rental Assistance 
for homeless veterans with case management and clinical services from the Department of Veteran Affairs. It also runs the Supportive Services for Veteran Families program. Housing agencies are also encouraging more integrative, supportive housing and mixed-income developments. Twenty-five QAPs in 2014 promoted multiple integrated models. Integrated models are characterized by a greater mixing of tenant populations, use of mainstream affordable housing financing, new development sponsors and partnerships, and different approaches to service delivery. Reports such as this one by CSH bring to light important housing needs as state agencies make critical decisions on how to allocate the loan housing tax credit, a very limited resource. You can find a copy of the report at www.taxcredithousing.com. It's called Housing Credit Policies in 2014 that Promote Supportive Housing. In other news, the Senate last week confirmed Nani Coloretti to serve as the new Deputy Secretary of HUD. Coloretti will now manage HUD's day-to-day operations, which includes a $45 billion budget and overseeing the department's approximately 8,500 employees. Coloretti was nominated by President Barack Obama in March, but was not confirmed until last week as the Senate delayed more than 130 Obama nominations. She will be the number two person at HUD, behind only HUD Secretary Julian Castro. Coloretti is the highest-ranking Filipino-American in the Obama administration. She was previously an assistant secretary at the Treasury Department, where she served as a top advisor to the secretary on the department's budget, plans, and management. She also served as a member of the Government Accountability and Transparency Board and helped establish the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Early in her career, Coloretti worked in San Francisco, Hawaii, and in the Clinton administration. We at Novogradic extend our congratulations and warm welcome to Nani as she takes on this new role. We look forward to working with her in the future. Before closing out our Long Housing Task Credit segment, I wanted to thank all of you who joined us last week in Las Vegas at our annual Novogradic Task Credit Housing Finance Conference. I want to thank our wonderful panelists for their expert insights and Senator Dean Heller for delivering a terrific keynote address. I'd like to remind listeners that our Novogradic Tax Credit Developers Conference is just around the corner. It'll be held January 8th and 9th at the Mandarin Oriental in Miami. I invite all of you to join us, and you can register online at www.novoco.com events. In New Marcus Tax Credit News, I'd like to discuss the CDFI Fund's latest Qualified Equity Investment Issues Report that was issued December 1st. The monthly report identifies the total dollar amount finalized by new market tax allocatees and the amount remaining to be issued, among other things. More than $232 million of qualified equity investments, or QEIs, were finalized in November, according to the report. That's more than $200 million less than the amount finalized in October. But that being said, this number is well above the average range of QI issuance in any given month. As of December 1st, the amount still available in new market tax credit allocation authority is more than $3.3 billion, but... I'd like to note that much of that has already been unofficially committed. To read the latest QEI issuance report, go to www.newmarketscredits.com. And I'd like to remind listeners that the deadline for prior allocatees' issuance of qualified equity investments is coming up soon. The deadline is January 30th, 2015. And if you have any questions about your qualified equity investments, please contact my partner, Brad Elphick, in our Atlanta Metro office at 678-867-2333. Brad also heads up the New Market Tax Credit Working Group. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, the Governor's Wind Energy Coalition last week sent a letter to House leaders urging 
than to support the inclusion of the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit and Investment Tax Credit in an end-of-year tax extenders package. The letter was led by Dennis Dugard, Governor of South Dakota, Jay Inslee, Governor of Washington, John Keatshaber, Governor of Oregon, and Terry Branstad, Governor of Iowa. They represent states that are national leaders in wind power. 26% of South Dakota's power generation comes from wind, for example. Washington State developers added 2,800 megawatts of wind energy between 2001 and 2012. Then again, in Oregon, the state generates more than 12% of its electricity from wind, and Iowa obtains 27% of its electricity generation from wind. The governors say the production tax credit drives renewable energy investment in states across the country. And they said that the investment tax credit is important to the nation's emerging offshore wind industry. The letter described the production tax credit and investment tax credit as providing an excellent return on taxpayer dollars. And it urged lawmakers to keep the incentives that allow the wind industry to stay competitive with other energy sources that also receive federal support. As always, follow me on Twitter for the latest updates at Novogratik. In state-level historic tax credit news, North Carolina's State Historic Preservation Office has reported a surge of applications submitted this year for the State Historic Tax Credit. This increase is no doubt due to the expiration of the State's Historic Tax Credit program at the end of this year. For the next three weeks, at least, North Carolina has a 20% state credit for income-producing historic properties and a 30% state credit for properties that do not produce income. Both credits expire January 1. The state also has a 30 and 40% credit for historic mills. The mills credit will expire for projects that haven't received state approval before the end of the year. Supporters of the program hope that the state legislature will consider implementing some version of the historic tax credit next year. In the interim, if you have any questions regarding applying in North Carolina before the end of the year, please contact my partner, Charlie Ruda, in our Boston office at 617-330-1920. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik. I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.